Good morning. In early January, Ruth and I made a trip and we went across to um, Los Angeles and spent some time there with Janelle and Andrew and, and then we did a, a flight up north to Vancouver Island. We were in Vancouver for a couple of days before we went a bit further north and um, we got across to Vancouver Island, we were there about 16 days, it rained every day. We comforted ourselves with the thought that when we land in New Zealand last Friday, we would see blue sky again, and we haven't seen blue sky now for 17 days. When we were in Vancouver, we picked up a rental car. The rental car company never offered us a GPS system. I forgot to think about it. But anyway, I didn't need it. I'm a man. I can read a map. I've been to Vancouver two or three times now, and I knew my way around. We were going down the motorway, four lanes either side. We were trying to find the Richmond shopping centre, and we came to a Y junction. And you know what it's like when you're driving, you don't know which one to take. And you turn the wheel, there's cars coming either side of you, you don't know what to do, I pulled up into the apex. There was a bit of an apron there, and there were cars going this way and cars going that way, and I sat there acknowledging I didn't know how to get anywhere or what to do. I looked at Ruth and she looked at me. We both looked heavenward and that didn't help. And then I heard a voice. Would you please accelerate into the slow lane and keep moving? looked in the rear vision mirror and there were red and blue lights flashing. Royal Canadian Mounted Police and the Land Rover. So I didn't know quite what to do and as I hesitated, he pulled out and went past and he went down the left of the Y junction. And I thought, that's guidance, I'll follow him. So I did and I followed the RCMP Land Rover for about a kilometre. It was pelting with rain. He pulled in under an overbridge. And I thought, well, why don't I pull in behind him? So I did. I didn't know what else to do. He got out of his Land Rover and came walking towards me. And you know how they walk like this? And I thought, you know, what am I in for here? So anyway, I put my window down and he came up and at least he smiled and said, you're lost, aren't you? I said, yes, I am. I'm from New Zealand and I'm trying to find the Richmond Shopping Centre. He said, well, it's a wee bit tricky from here. I'll tell you what follow me. So we did, and we found the shopping centre. I want to recount this morning another story about another man. He wasn't driving a Land Rover, but he said, follow me. And it's the account of when a carpenter met some fishermen. I would like to read the account, if I could, from Mark chapter 1, if you have your Bible with you. Mark chapter 1. We'll read from verse 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, 
he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed Jesus. The little teardrop lake we know in the Bible as Galilee is about 21 kilometers long and 11 kilometers wide. At its northern end, it is overshadowed in some distance away by the great Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is constantly covered in snow, and it's where storms are often birthed. They roar down the mountainside and out across the lake, and you will no doubt recall the incidents of Christ walking on the water and the stilling the storm and so on. The Sea of Galilee is normally a very generous benefactor to those who ply the lake and seek their living from it. But on this particular day, the lake was a miser. The Bible records that these fishermen, Peter and Andrew and James and John and their father Zebedee and some hired servants, they went out all night and they caught nothing. Normally they go out in two boats and they drop one end of the net here and the one end of the net here and they make a circle and draw the net and try and bring in the catch. This night they'd come home to shore with nothing. They tethered their boat somewhere up on shore and one or two of the fishermen were idly casting a net in from the shore. That wasn't the best way to catch fish, but at least they were trying to extract something from after such a hard night of work. Others had put their back to the rising sun and they were cleaning the debris of the lake out of the nets. And then into this ordinary, everyday, mundane life, a man intervenes. He was no different from any other man to look at or in his, the way he walked or his stature. We know him as son of Mary, son of Joseph, son of God. He was the carpenter. And Jesus simply said four words. Come follow me. And then he added, I will make you to become fishers of men. It's rather strange, you know, but in those days as it is today, it is the pupil who seeks the professor. You seek the university you want to go to if you have enough money to go wherever you like to get the one that will offer you the best for what you're seeking to gain. But in this day, the professor sought out the people, the pupil. And I have a problem with this call. Come follow me, and I will make you to become a fisher of men. You see, I, I was born to be a leader, I think. Weren't you? You know, followers are, are ordinary people. They're, they're the sort of downtrodden. They're not so estimable. They're not so good that they follow. They're like sheep. I want to be a leader. I want to be someone 
Why didn't Jesus come and say to these, two, these uh, four fishermen, come follow me and I will make you leaders in the church that I'm going to set up? Come follow. Come follow me. There's a journalist and historian called Gary Willis, and he wrote this about followers. I always have problems with this. Come follow me. I've already said that. <laughs> Followers are a lazy and not very estimable lot. They are people to be dominated and mesmerized. We have thousands of books on leadership, but very little on followership. The ideal seems to be a world in which everyone is a leader. And I wonder how these two men felt when they were told to come follow me. We buy into the notion, don't we, that if you don't blaze new trails, you're not that sort of greater person. If you're not a Sir Edmund Hillary or a Christopher Columbus or people like this, there's something lacking somewhere. So what did Jesus mean when he said, I want you to become a follower of me? Does it mean that you simply put your footprints into the sand at the same place where Jesus put his? Or is there some deeper meaning to being a follower of Jesus Christ? We want to cling rather tenaciously to the idea that we should be the captains of our own lives. We'll trust Christ with eternity, but not with the things of today. We've just sung a song, and I wrote down the words where it said, you have no equal. You have no equal. Frankly, Lord, that's not right in my life. There is something equal, and I will come to that. But I want to suggest four unavoidable consequences, four demanding imperatives, four quite frightening, life-changing outcomes of putting one foot after another into the footprints of Christ. And the first is adapting to a new economy. The Bible says quite simply that when Jesus said, follow me, they instantly left their nets. Now, a fisherman has four assets. There's his own personal skill, there's the friendship of those who go with him out to catch fish every day. There is their boat and there is their nets. Nets without a boat are hopeless. Boats without a net are hopeless. Both without your own personal skill and the backing of your friends is just as useless. Now, the Bible expression or the Bible account of this little story absolutely staggers me. When he said, come follow me and I will make you to become fishers of men. There is no record of the disciples or Peter and Andrew saying, well, well, how far and, and for how long did they leave their nets thinking they're just going to go to the dairy together with Christ? What does it mean? What did Jesus mean when he said to them, follow me? 
They absolutely left their nets. They left their income stream, and they, in fact, put a whole new value on their assets. When you go over to Luke's account, he adds a bit more color and a bit more detail. There was a crowd gathered around as well, and Jesus put out into the boat, or stood in the boat, and spoke to the crowds. Then he said to Peter and Andrew, push out a little further into the deep and put down your nets on the right side. Peter said, come on, Lord, we're experienced fishermen. We've done it all night. We've got nothing, but at your word, we'll do it. And they go out, they threw the nets over, and they draw in such a catch that uh, nearly break the nets. And all of that added into the color so that when Jesus said, follow me, Peter and Andrew said, this is a good thing we're on to. He had already changed water into wine. And now Jesus said, guys, I want you to hitch your wagon to my star. They left their nets. What does it mean to leave your nets? And this happened, too, in the ordinary, everyday affairs of their professional life. They weren't in a church. They weren't in a school of discipleship. They were simply cleaning nets. Their hands smelt of fish. And Jesus entered into the ordered routine of their lives and said, follow me. They revalued their assets. When we were in Vancouver, or across on the island, and it rained every day, we watched a bit of television. And I was staggered. There's two things that seem to be advertised more than any other over there. One is cosmetics. Well, I don't need those, I think. And the other is investment advice. Call the Nova Scotia Bank or call this bank and we'll tell you how to, how to expand your income. We bought a home we live in about 10 years ago and the latest valuation has come out and it's doubled. I'm a rich man. And God is asking me, I believe, when he says, follow me, to adapt to a new economy, to look at my possessions in a new light. I have a lot of toys, and I don't want to throw them out of the playpen. When I was a teenager, one of the most challenging statements I ever read or heard was of that young man, Jim Elliott, who lost his life on the beaches in South America. And he wrote words which I think are Profound, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And the challenge that keeps snapping at my heels as I went over and over and over this is this question that I addressed to myself. Have I left my nets? Later on, Jesus accounted a young man who came to him and said, I've kept all the commands. What more do I need to do? And he quoted the six commands, which are man-to-man commands. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, etc., etc., and left out the God-to-man commands. Thou shalt have no other God before me. And Jesus said, you've got to do three things. Sell what you've got, give to the poor, and come. And then those two words again, follow me. I am not suggesting I'm going to sell my house, give to the poor, but I do suggest that it is time I revalued my assets, my playpen, my toys. I've got to heed the call to abandon ship 
let go of my nets. And the ever so deductive conclusion to play it safe, invest wisely, because we don't know what the future might hold. And then the words cut in very easily. Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupts and thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither of those things happen. For where your treasure treasure is, there will your heart be also. When we were in Los Angeles, Brooker and I hired a van between us and piled all the two families in and we went and went on a little tour around Hollywood. We visited all the homes. We visited the home of Jennifer Aniston, Justin Timberlake, and all these great names. Justin Timberlake's home is phenomenal. Amazing. One of the most amazing things, though, is the number of posts all around it with cameras on it. Watching the property. And the person who took us on the tour showed us this little sort of a a cabin in the front, and there is a security guard, 24 hours a day, 365 days a week. God is asking us when he says, follow me, to reappraise the things of earth and to start investing in the things that last for eternity. Let me challenge you with this question, what is your heart focus? What what gets it to throb a little bit harder and a little bit longer and a little bit louder? How do you lay up treasure in heaven? Is there a deposit slip around somewhere that I can fill in and lay it up? But now the challenge becomes even more compelling. Not only adapting to a new economy, but now adopting of a new family. Because after Jesus had said to Peter and Andrew, come follow me, it says they left their nets. Immediately he saw John and James and their father Zebedee and the servants. They said to James and John, you come and follow me as well. And immediately they left their father. In fact, in Luke's account, it says they left their father, they left their boats, and they left everything. It drives it even further. They left, they left everything. Nothing was left behind. Oh, everything was left behind. And they followed the footsteps of the master. We don't even have any, any record in the Bible of, of James and John saying, Zebedee, Dad, did you hear what Jesus has just asked us to do? What do you think? They just got in behind and started to walk off with Jesus. Zebedee may have yelled out, guys, come back. You know, I want to talk to mum and mum about this. The four of us sit down. They didn't hear. They were already out of earshot. They were gone. What does it mean to leave your father? Brad, listen to this, please. It doesn't mean you just throw them overboard. After all, they write the will. Let me say this with absolute Clarity and with absolute emotion, if I can. If you want to follow Jesus, I'm not talking salvation, I'm talking discipleship. If you want to follow Jesus, it will cost you everything. Both your riches and your relationships. Both must be put into perspective. 
The Bible puts it this way. If you love your father and your mother more than you love me, you are not worthy of being mine. Or if you love your son or your daughter more than me, you're not worthy of being mine. The emphatic words are more than, not to the exclusion of, but Christ says, I demand and I will be and I want to be and you should make me the centre focus of every breath you draw every day. And every computer, every house, every car, every piece of clothing, every ballpoint pen you own should be held in the light of the fact that they are just lent to you. A man was asked recently, or a, a, a rich man passed away, and at his funeral the question was poised, how much did he leave? And the answer was everything. Everything. Job said, naked I came into the world and naked I will go out of it. And God will have an account to ask of us, what did you do with the ballpoint pen I gave you? What did you do with the computer? What did you do with the car? What did you do with every breath I gave you every day of your life? How did you invest it? How did you use it? You've got to adapt to a new economy. You've got to adopt a new family. A man called Joseph Stowell, who was at one time leader of the um, Moody Bible Institute, has written a book called Following Christ. There's not many books about following. This is a beauty. He wrote in it, we cling tenaciously to strategic points of independence. We soothe our consciences by following him selectively when it is convenient and self-gratifying. Then we wonder why Christianity seems sterile, ritualistic, burdensome, and even boring. Following Christ is not a smorgasbord experience where you, kick, uh, where you pick and choose from a menu. Put very simply, and I don't know how to make this clear enough, you either, you either follow or you drift. There is no middle ground. You follow Christ tenaciously, absolutely, 100%, or you drift. Let me say here with an openness which I don't want to share very often. One of the issues I fear most in life, and I've now gone past the 70-year status, is that of simple, everyday erosion of my love for Jesus. That subtle, creeping, invasive type of erosion that pushes out any vestige of passion for Christ to the outskirts of my life, and I take Christ and park him in a spur line somewhere, and when I'm ready, I'll go and pick him up and bring him back into the center place of my life. The gradual, slow acceptance that something less than everything is okay, where excellence gives way to acceptable, and then acceptable gives way to adequate, and then adequate gives way to near enough. And eventually from those first blush of days when I gave my life to Christ as an eight-year-old, I'm now settling for mediocrity. And I live every day with a sort of a commitment to Christ. The next day it's mediocre, back to commitment, back to mediocrity. And we drift through life and there is no real focus on following Christ for all that it costs. You see, he and I are not co-directors. We're not co-pilots. 
I don't sit in the seat beside him so that when he blows it, I take over the controls. Either Christ is everything or he is nothing. And I find that hard. 100% commitment is what's called for and 99.9 doesn't cut it. I often smile when you hear those ads about if you buy this bleach, it'll clean away 99.9% of germs. God asks us for 100%. A lady called Natalie Gable from the USA once researched the effect in a number of situations if 99.9% was okay. All right? Call for 100% in these situations, and she explored what it would mean if 99% were okay. And this is what she found. The IRS, the tax department, would lose... 2 million documents per year if 99.9 were okay. 12 babies would be given to the wrong parents every day of the year if 99.9 were okay. 291 pacemakers would be, uh, operations would be performed incorrectly every year. 20,000 drug prescriptions would be incorrectly dispensed and 114,500 mismatched shoes would be shipped around the country. If 99% were kosher, if near enough is good enough, some results are quite shattering. God calls us to 100%. But there's more. Adopting of a new economy, adapting to a new economy, adopting a new family, the next one I want to talk about is accepting of a new priority. I will make you to become fishers of men. You see, God isn't finished with me yet. Just wait a while, I'm getting there. I have the image, if you like, of Jesus as a carpenter with his apron on, working at his bench, and around his feet are the chips and dust as he works on my life. And those chips and those dust consist of my heartaches and my tears, my disappointments and my broken dreams, my forsakenness and loneliness and even personal tragedies is God shaping me and molding me and making me. And he loves you and me too much to leave us as we are. He loves us too much to leave us living in the world of mediocrity. You see, you're not the finished product. And 600 years before Christ, there was a prophet we know as the weeping prophet. And God told him to go and down to the potter's house and learn a lesson. And we read these words in the book of Jeremiah. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house. And there I will cause you to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house and there he was making something at the wheel. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter, so he made it again into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as to the potter? Look at the clay, as the hand, look at the clay is in the hand of the potter. So are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Notice the words, as it seemed good to the potter. The ups and downs of my life and of your life, watching my mum die, watching my brother die, disappointed in not getting that job and in doing this. These are the shavings 
that God is creating as he makes my life. In Philippians 1, we read these words, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will continue it until the day of Jesus Christ. I am still being sandpapered. I am still being shaved down. I'm still being brought into the man that God wants me to be. The fourth gate consequence, adapting to a new economy, adopting of a new family, having a new priority, is this one, absorbing of a new identity. Follow me. I was so grateful when that Royal Canadian Mounted Policeman said to me, just follow where I'm going, I'll lead you there. He didn't ask me to give up anything. But Peter and Andrew and James and John walked away from everything and fell in line with the Master. There are three accounts in the Gospel of Peter following Jesus and his dimension of him doing so. The first is this account here. The second is in the Garden of Gethsemane when Peter was so strong for the Lord and struck off the high priest's servant's ear, but then Jesus said, don't do that. And then the, then the uh, servants from the high priest arrested Jesus and took him off into the night. The Bible says in John's Gospel that all the disciples forsook him and fled. But it says, but Peter followed afar off. I want to park that and take you to the third incident. It was after the resurrection. They were again on a beach. Peter was again gone fishing. They caught nothing again. They looked on the shore and there was Jesus with a fire. And Jesus called the disciples in to share breakfast. And then he challenged Peter three times with the words, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. And he said, follow me. Um, I would like to think that when Jesus said, come follow me, I would like to ask how far. I, I think I would need to ask why. I think I would need to ask where to. And Peter simply got up and followed the master. Later on, a young man came to Jesus, and I mentioned it before, God said, and Jesus said to him, go, sell, give, and come follow me. And Jesus then commented on that and said, it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get to heaven. That young man said he walked away because he had many possessions. He had a big playpen, and he didn't want to give them up. And then Peter came along and said, Master, we have left everything to follow you and then what will we get what's in it for us to follow the master and I'm afraid that's the sort of situation that I find myself in how, how long do you want me to follow you for and what do I get out of this let's go forward now a few day, a few uh, years three years and Jesus is now about to be betrayed and to go to the cross. 
And Jesus sat in that upper room, a little table, the men were gathered around. Judas had already dipped in and taken the bread and had gone out, and it says in the scripture it was night. Night literally and also in the soul of that man. But Jesus at that upper room sent a tsunami through the 12 disciples. He said to, to them, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. These 12 men who had given everything to follow the master, one of them was such an audacious clot that he was going to betray the master. It caused consternation. One of them eventually walked out into the night and committed suicide. And Jesus then sent the next tsunami into the group of 12 men gathered with him. He said to them, my children, I will be with you only a little longer, and where I am going, you cannot come. Come on, Jesus, you can't mean that. You asked me three years ago to follow you. Now you're telling me you're going somewhere, and I cannot come. What's the point of following you if I cannot come? I think Peter was deeply hurt. I think he was shocked. I think he spoke for the other 11 men around there at the table. And Jesus replied this way, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. And this is the whole crunch of following Christ. There is a later. There is treasures stored in heaven. Christ said, if I go, I will come again. My mum, my dad, my brother, my sister-in-law, my cousin, my niece, your brother, your cousin, your uncle, your auntie, they have all followed later. They have gone home to glory, and there they are finding the treasure that they sent on ahead. And that is why on a sandy shore of a tiny lake in a distant land around 2,000 years ago, a local carpenter had hung up his apron, walked past on that beach, called four men to follow him. And the consequences of that were ginormous. And they had to reappraise their assets, reappraise how they lived. I'm not talking tithing here. I'm talking everything to do with all that you own and all that you are. And I invite you today to do exactly that. Jesus is not walking past you at the moment. Or is he? We're not on a sandy beach together. We're in church, for goodness sake. But Jesus wants to call you in the everyday affairs of life and say that very simple thing. Will you follow me at an enormous cost, an enormous cost if you do, an even more enormous cost if you don't? Your life has eternal consequences. For me... For you, for all who say, Christ is mine. I want to pray a prayer with you. I want you to think carefully about what it means to be a follower, to be a disciple, to be challenged by the reality of a new type of economy, a new type of family, a new type of priority, and a new type of following Christ. Let's pray. Father, I love my toys. I love my reasonably cozy lifestyle. 
and frankly your call on my life to total abandonment and to total commitment to you frightens me. Dear God, please help me within the confines of my heart where decisions are made to do the maths. Help me to understand the stark truth that I cannot serve both you and the total absorbing pursuit of riches and assets. Lord, please come alongside me, I pray, and help me break the bonds that tie me to anything or anyone that has the potential to push you to the outer fringes of my day-to-day -day existence. Father, you know better than I can imagine what I truly lack or that I truly lack the ability or the willpower to break those bonds and to commit to a lifestyle that frankly scares me. Help me too to accept that the heartaches, the setbacks, the tears, the broken shallow dreams that form within my heart about the shavings at your feet as you make me as good or as seems good to the carpenter. Lord, I truly want with all my heart to be what you want me to be. The price tag makes me draw breath, but I am sincerely willing to pay the price. That is my prayer today, at this precise moment in time, for tomorrow the cares of this world will crowd out the resolve I have right now. Father, help me today to leave my nets, leave my boat, leave my booth and simply follow you. This is my honest, fervent prayer that I make in the name of the Lord Jesus, my Lord, my Saviour, my Leader. Amen. Can we stand together?